0: Welcome to another episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion. This is Andre Cohen, your host, and today we have a really wonderful treat for you. We were able to speak with Dr. Bruce Perry, who is a world renowned uh, neuroscientist who talks a lot about or ex- explores how trauma affects the brain. And he really, in this conversation, ties our early recollections, our early childhood experiences to understanding how we develop implicit or unconscious bias. So uh, I was really excited to, to speak with him. I think you'll enjoy this as much as I did. And um, let's get to it.
1: And uh, uh, early on in my career, oh my God, when, they, when there were live segments, oh my God, I was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> I would sweat I mean, it would be just embarrassing. I mean, there'd be times when I'd be speaking, and I'd feel like a little bit of a like a, a, drop of sweat would just dangle on the tip of my nose, and it was so embarrassing.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but you, you, you are so accomplished, and, uh, and, and that's why I kind of reached out to you. So in, in my research, I'm trying to solve a problem, right? So I'm the uh, the program coordinator at the Mayo Clinic here in Rochester, and hopefully you've heard of the Mayo
1: Oh, yeah, no, I almost came to Mayo when I was
0: <clears throat> coming out of my training at Yale.
1: It was one of the three places that I was looking at really closely, and I, it's an amazing place. I mean, I think that, you know, on so many levels, the, the, the way you engage the patient and the way you treat your colleagues, the way you create a healing climate there, I think it's
0: very unusual well thank you and uh, we we work hard at it and um, so, so to also take us to our next level we've been really wrestling with this idea of or, or the concept surrounding um uh, implicit bias or unconscious bias and so in my research and, and looking at that I, I i have some suspicions and i hope that in our conversation you can help me um either prove or disprove my hypothesis on, on some of these things and sure. it is di- directly related to your field of study this, this idea of trauma right, right. so right. um so so that'll be kind of the the, the tenor of, of this conversation how do we uh, uh look at our childhood at, at the environments that we've grown up in recognize that we may have some biases that come directly out of those things. But more importantly, how do we, how do we manage those things? Um, and specifically for folks who've experienced trauma in those environments, uh, as well as those of us, um, and I'll ask you to talk about secondary trauma too, right? Because I don't have to necessarily experience the trauma myself to have been traumatized. Right. Is that true? Okay. Okay.
1: Absolutely. Uh, you know, it's, I'm, I'm actually really happy to have the opportunity to to talk about this because it's, you know, it's such a crucially important aspect of all human interactions is an acknowledgement at some point as you mature, that the person you're interacting with came from a different place than you did. Mm -hmm. And because of that, they're going to have a slightly different worldview. And it doesn't mean it's bad. It's just going to be different. And it's interesting, in the in, in the acknowledgement of the fact that everybody's had this unique and different experience, you begin to realize that your worldview has a distortion to it. Hmm. It has a limitation. And as wonderful and, and sure as you are of what you believe in, the sort of the intellectual awareness that, wow, it, it just there have to be things I don't understand and don't, and don't know. And I need to have a more open mind about how I engage with other people and learn from them and, and, and you know, interpret their behaviors or judge them and so forth. And it's, it, you know, you've seen the, the sort of the, the climate of discourse in our society over the last 10 years has become increasingly um, shrill um, judgmental um, people are unwilling to, to listen to each other very well it's and I think more now than ever we need to understand some of these things and incorporate them into the way we do everything you know how, how we think about uh, raising our kids how we think about constructing our workplace how we think about uh, incorporating you know uh, intentional teaching about these things into medical school schools of education, schools of social work. So, you know, uh, so that this isn't sort of some accidental discovery that this is an intentional thing that we teach people. That's just factual about the way human beings work. It, you know, everybody has is implicit bias. <clears throat> it's impossible uh, not to grow up without being to some degree limited by the catalog of your own experiences. And, and that is, basically is going to create an implicit bias about something different from your experience so whether it's somebody who speaks a different language has a different skin color has a different belief about evolution has whatever your brain is just going to at this very not primitive but at a lower level than sort of this intellectual capability we have it's going to uh it's going to prejudge, all kinds of stuff.
0: Yeah. So anyway, on,
1: no, I'm, I'm rambling. Maybe.
0: No, 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 no. You're 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 right in the space that we want to be. Right. So, so, so first, let's back up just a little bit and find out more about you. So, so you're you're a um, a, a neurologist and a and a and a researcher by trade, as well as a uh, a psychologist. Is that correct? Well, I'm
1: a, I'm actually. <clears throat> I'm a neuroscientist. I, I, I got my PhD in basically neurobiology, uh, and then I went to do my clinical training, and I became a child
0: psychiatrist. Oh, psychiatrist! I'm sorry.
1: That's all right. That's all right. And um, but from the time I was an undergraduate, I was studying the the development of the stress response systems in the brain, and looking you you know doing that in simpler models, tissue culture. Rats, primates, and then humans and um, and one of the fundamental principles that uh, kept recurring in this research was that the as the brain processes information, it it basically has to do it in a sequence. so when when I look at you and you look at me, the photons that sort of create the visual image ultimately have to first stimulate the back of the retina. And then that causes a pattern of neuronal activity that goes into a middle part of your brain. And then it has to get processed a couple times more before it finally gets to the visual cortex. So there's a sequence of processing. And this happen, that's the same thing with touch, and the same thing with hearing, is that all of the sensory input that we use to make sense out of the world has to go through these lower parts of the brain first before it gets to the Cortex, and the cortex is a part of your brain that um, is the most uniquely human, and it's it's where our ideas are, it's where our beliefs and values are, and all of the, the sort of the socialized good things that we try to put into the brains of our kids go end up in the cortex. But it, it, for all of us, um, every single moment has to get filtered through these sort of more primitive and more emotional and reactive parts of the brain. So the rational part of your brain is the last part of your brain to get um, information about what's going on in the moment. Hmm. And so it's an interesting reality that the dumbest part of your brain, the most reactive part of your brain, gets first dibs on, on interpreting an interaction. And so what that means is if you have any associations, if you have any his, developmental historical biases that are based upon your earlier experiences, those potent biases have the potential to basically be a distorting filter to the way the smart part of your brain interprets the moment. Hmm. Let me give you an example. And this is a very concrete example. It's about skin color. And it actually involves somebody from Minnesota. <laughs> uh, there was a uh, very uh, kind uh, young woman grew up in a very liberal home. Wanted to go help other people who were less advantaged, and so she volunteered after college to go uh, do give immunizations to kids in rural villages in Africa. And she was a typical Scandinavian, Norwegian, you know, Norwegian blonde. You know, kid from Minnesota. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so she she went to uh, these very very isolated rural villages to to give inoculations, and and some of these uh, villages had kids that had never seen a white person, and so and she of course is going into these interactions with this big heart, and she's going to sort of you know she's thinking that she's going to be viewed as this. Kind helpful person because that was her intent, but frequently the children would see her when she came in, having no idea that she was going to give shots or anything, and and would literally scream and cry and run to their parents. And it was because they had never seen a white person, and that was so atypical for their little brains that they didn't know what to make of it. And one of the one of the things about the stress response is that whenever your brain is exposed to something that's unfamiliar or, or new, uh, the default response of the brain is to activate your, you know, to basically treat that as something potentially threatening. And so novelty a- activates this sort of defensive reaction. That's why anytime you've been in a system, I'm sure that somebody has a good idea, and <clears throat> the immediate response to the good idea is, oh, no, we can't do that. That's I don't know. We can't do that. And a week later, they'll come in and say, "You know what we're going to do? You know, we're going to do exactly what somebody suggested a week earlier." And but it's they've had time to percolate on it, and they've had they co-opted the idea, and it's no longer that person's idea; it's our idea. And anyway, I'm rambling, but
0: no, the, the, wonderful. What, so you're really talking about. So you're an advocate for the triune brain, right? So. Yeah, I mean, that's, I mean, that you know, the as Paul
1: McLean, a, a, a wonderful sort of pioneer in the field of neuroscience, um, coined the term the triune brain, which is basically uh, trying to describe the fact that if you look at the human brain, it's got these components. The lower component is very much like the traditional reptilian brain. And then the, there's a layer of sort of brain networks over that that's the the limbic system and then on top of that is the cortex and so we've got these sort of three uh, um, major anatomical components of the human brain and the top part is the is the part where that's most uniquely human it's the part of our brain that we teach to when we're teaching our kids language and right from wrong and geography and all that stuff um, but in order to get to the rational part of the brain, you've got to go through the more primitive parts of the brain that tend to solve problems in very reactive ways. Um, and, and it's, you know, your earlier comment about the fact that, that if you've had previous trauma, that will influence the way you interpret the present, and that's absolutely true. And so if you grew up, for example, in an environment where the only man or the first man that you sort of knew as a young child was somebody who yelled a lot, somebody who was dismissive to you, somebody who was assaultive to your mother, uh, your brain creates associations about what these attributes of loud, dominant men are threatening. And then you... Grow up, and you have mostly female teachers. Then, then you get a, a male coach in the seventh grade, and he raises his voice. And your brain goes, "He categorizes him like this abusive man," and so you'll end up it, it sort of interacting with him in ways that are distorted by your previous experience. Mm-hmm. And and this happens all the time. I mean, you know, this, this is one of the, you know, we're, we're actually working with a couple of medical schools to teach about this because it influences the way you as a physician will literally interact with your, your patients. And it will certainly influence the way you interact with your colleagues.
0: Give me an example of that. You know, as a physician, how could those past experiences you know, because I, I'm I I've I've gone to medical school, I've been practicing, I am I I'm at the top of my game, yeah. I I am self-aware, I am, you know, I, 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 I'm I'm great at what I do. So so how can those things, you know, I pride myself on my self discipline for and my self actualization. I mean, those are things that I'm I'm accomplished at. And, and, and you probably, and there's every reason to be that way.
1: But I would suspect if you sort of search through the way, you know, the catalog of clients and, and, and people you interact with during the day, there are some people that you just feel naturally pulled to, you go, wow, I like this guy. And you spend two more minutes talking with this person about whatever you find out. Let's say that you grew up and you were an athlete and you find out that the adolescent in front of you is play sports you 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 honestly will spend more time with that kid than the kid who's in band uh, and and you'll just your brain will just go i you know you not like you will dismiss that child but you'll have a different interaction and and sometimes it, it can be extreme you know there are people that um and you've probably seen this with your colleagues that there are some people who will be incredibly dismissive to nurses and they'll be uh, imperial when they interact with, uh, you know, a, a resident. You know, they'll be demeaning, or that, you know, they'll be needlessly uh, demeaning. And 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 if you track the, who they're demeaning to, it's not everybody all the time. It, it, they tend to sort of lean towards one type of person or another. Or, you know, and it's, and we all have these things. We all, we yeah, all but, have,
0: but that maybe that's, maybe that's just my personality. Maybe it's, you know, it, is it, yeah. is there a difference between having a, uh, an implicit bias or, or an unconscious bias and then something just being, that's just how I am, you know? I, well, and that's, because and that's part of what I'm trying to say
1: is that part of what, who we all are involves a whole catalog of our own history, which you can reframe as this catalog of implicit biases. Um, you know, I grew up in an environment, I'll give you an implicit bias from my own life, right? And, it's, and, and it wasn't not so implicit, it was pretty explicit. You know, I grew up in North Dakota, and there's like, I didn't see an African-American kid, I didn't see a black kid ever, until I was supposed to wrap, there was a kid who was, uh, was from Minot, North Dakota. And his dad was in the Air Force. And, and so he was like the only black kid in Minot. And he was on the wrestling team. And I had to wrestle him. And so in my mind, I was like, I'm going to get my ass kicked. I'm going to get my ass kicked. He's black. And I was. And after a while, I realized, wow, I'm thinking that he's like a better athlete than me just because he's black. Yeah. And, and it was one of those things that I just, I actually remember being Trying to give myself a pep talk, that like, you know, there there must be some kids that are black that aren't great athletes. You know, I mean, it was like I was literally working through this whole bias that had come from me growing up, where my most of my images about black men were that these were really good athletes, or the way they're portrayed in television, that they were scary and in gangs. Both of those were distortions. Yeah, and. And I have had to, you know, once you sort of recognize their distortion, then you can kind of go back and go, you know, let's actually see how strong he is. You know, let's see what his moves are. Let's judge him for the way he wrestles. Yeah. Not for the fact that he's a black kid. Yep. And um, it was it, it helped me. It was one of my first sort of acknowledgments that you can really have these distortions and misinterpretations of the world and it, it it was helpful for me as i grew up actually
0: yeah uh, did you win i did <laughs> oh good 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 good, good. <laughs> so, so, so it, it is interesting that and i like how you use the word distortion um because i think in the absence of black people in your community you, you kind of made up some stories given some distorted stories uh mm-hmm. based on What I was exposed to. Yeah, what you're exposed to. And this is why, for
1: example, media the bias in the media, when I was growing up, now I'm older than you, but one of the most tragic things that happened was that African-American adolescents on television were portrayed 95% of the time in negative ways. And so if you were growing up and watching television, um, your brain started to create this unconscious catalog of African American adolescents as being likely to be, you know, criminals in gangs, blah, blah, blah. And it, and it creates this really significant negative implicit bias.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and it's interesting, I, I as I try to teach people about implicit bias, I, I, I want people to sort of not be, not be afraid to also sort of recognize that, listen, there are some implicit biases that aren't toxic. That are There are some implicit biases that actually are relatively positive for you. So for example, if you have the implicit bias that people are in general um, fair and honest and decent, and all of that is based upon your earlier experiences with human beings, hmm. you go into an interaction with somebody with this interesting expectation that if you treat them fairly and get and send out signals of social engagement, they're going to be uh, a good person and, and interact with you in a good way. And the truth is, because of the neurobiology of expectation, you end up eliciting from people good things. And and so having an implicit bias is not necessarily always a bad thing. It, it's it's and again I'm sort of. The way I'm defining, you know, I probably shouldn't call it bias. Well, it is a bias. It's a bias towards
0: good versus the bad. Yeah. Right.
1: Right. And I I think that many people in the healing, uh, you know, many people who are in our field kind of have this tendency to be generally positive about people. You know, that's kind of why we want to be healers. We want to do good things, you know, very few people go into this field because they want to make a lot of money. I mean, if you're smart and you see who's making money, it isn't the doctors, it's the business people, you know? Um, so there's something that pulls us into the, that field that is related to our own history. Anyway, I'm getting way off topic here. No, so. no,
0: no, no, this is, you're, you're, you're right in the right where we need to be in in this conversation i i also was thinking about you know your story about the absence of of black people and feeding off the media and would that be an example of kind of gestalt psychology that that in the absence of we create stories to complete stories exactly yeah you know
1: and and that's whether you want to you know the gestalt psychology is an area that talked about that but even in the cognitive neurosciences, the hard neurosciences that study the creation of memory, one of the things that we know is that the brain, as we sort of construct our interpretation of the world—that's, you know, what's going on right now—our brain fills hates a vacuum, so it fills in the blanks, and it will fill in the blanks of things, pulling from your own experience, and so this is where you can insert, you know. Um, you can end up mis, misinterpreting an interaction. Um, and where you, a lot of times, for example, let me give an example, and this is where, this is very important, it's related to implicit bias, but it's, it's around stuff like cross-cultural communication. So you've probably worked with some of the First Nations or Native American populations. that when you grow up in, uh, in many of those Cultures, there's a very different catalog of nonverbal cues than there is if you grow up in a New York City and you're Italian American. And so, if you're an Italian American and you uh, uh, interact with somebody who is not is from a culture that's a little bit more emotionally subdued in their nonverbal communication, you interpret that subdued. Thing, as if they're sad or they're bored or they're angry, and and you just you, you misinterpret it, and and if you are coming from that culture, you misinterpret this excited Italian form of communication as this person's a little off kilter, and um, and it's a it, it can lead to miscommunication, and I think that this is um, again this is related to the same neurobiological mechanisms of implicit bias that we all are judging the present based upon our our filters from the past. And <clears throat> if we grew up in a family that is very non-emotionally expressive, and we run into somebody who is emotionally expressive, our catalog of experience goes, wow, the only time somebody was ever like this was when they were really pissed. They were really angry. And, and so you can interpret excitement for anger or, um, a raised voice for, you know, they're going to hurt me or, you know, depending, it's all everything, as you mentioned earlier, has to kind of get filtered through your own personal developmental experiences.
0: Yeah. And then that forms the basis of our private logic. And then we start to rationalize behaviors because That's exactly right. we're collecting all these things that confirm all the things that we think we know about ourselves in the world. Yeah.
1: And, and this plays out in relationships, right? You know, I can't tell you, I'm, I've been married for years and years and years and years. And there'll be times when I, my wife will say something and say, like giving me an interpretation about what I'm thinking. And I'm like, what? Where did that go? <laughs> and she'll say, well, you did this and you did this and you did this. I'm like, well, I, that had nothing to do with what, you know, I'm not upset. I just, I just wanted to watch the game. <laughs> like, you know, you didn't want to come in and talk and blah, blah, blah. So were talking to me. I'm like, no, I wanted to watch the game. <laughs> right. And yeah.
0: No, so good stuff. So I do want, I, I do want you to do some, some shameless plugs uh, yeah. <laughs> for, for some of your, um, for some of your books. Like one of the ones that, uh, that came up, uh, just as I was doing research on you, uh, time after time, was The Boy Raised as a Dog. Uh, Can you talk just a little bit about that book and what's the tenor of that, around kind of uh, trauma and and trauma-informed care? Uh, Mm -hmm. How did you come to that title? And then, what is that book about? Well, about,
1: basically what happened was that I, because of the work that we were doing about brain development, the impact of trauma on the brain, how it changed uh, both the biology of the brain, and then that had an impact on how behavior and emotional functioning and everything i I ended up as we talked about earlier in the show um, I would get reporters that would call me and ask me to kind of make a comment about some event you know or or you know why would somebody do that your guess is as good as mine. <laughs> Anyway, I got off the phone with one of these uh, reporters who was a new, doing a story for the New York Times and she said, you should write a book. <laughs> I'm like, I don't have time to write a book. And, um, you know, this is just, as you know, the currency in academics is grants, you know, academic articles and books, nobody, I mean, books aren't really, not big currency in, in academics. So I was like, I don't really have time to write a book. And she just said, well, we could write a book, why don't you just, you know, I'll call you and ask, questions and then you know we do this all the time anyway so we'll just transcribe it and then we I thought about it and I said all right well okay and so what we did was that I um, I said what the way I want to do it is I, I think people really learn things through stories you know it's if we just did kind of a science book people wouldn't care but if, if they hear the evolution of my understanding about these things based on these clinical cases where I made mistakes or where uh, I learned something from that case, I think I could walk people kind of through my my development as a, as a think about as a thinker uh, so that they would finally get to the point where they would recognize you know that this makes sense you know that these uh, adversity and neglect and chaos and all that changes the, the biology of the brain and you know, and that we need to do something about that stuff, and so that's what we did. I mean, about once every week or two weeks, she'd call me, and and I would sort of talk about a uh, a case, and we would record that, and then she would it would get transcribed, and then she'd write a little bit, and then send it to me, and then I'd write a little bit more, and, and so we went through this process and wrote a book that basically is a, is a series of case studies where I introduce these different concepts about, you know, the way the brain's organized, how the brain processes information in a sequential way, how the stress response works, a little bit about neglect. And um, and it's done really, really well. I mean, it's I think it's sold like 400,000 copies. And,
0: wow. Yeah,
1: I know. I was surprised. But Kudos it, to you. Well, it, it really, it's... I, I think it's this, the formula, you know, it's this, the people respond to stories more than they do to the sort of typical uh, science writing, I think.
0: Yeah, yeah. So I, I appreciate I was thinking, just taking notes as you were talking, and I, I think it, it, it seems to be very important that we share stories with, with one another and that we share some of the novelness of our uniqueness in our stories. Yeah. Um, to, to really combat this idea of this implicit bias or unconscious bias, um, and I also found it helpful to two other concepts that you kind of introduced in this conversation um, that we we see through distortions that we all have these distortions, and yeah. so it's important for us to, to recognize that. And then the other um, the other one actually just escaped me. <laughs> <So> it, was, <laughs> it just escaped me. But but go ahead. It,
1: well, you know, the, the, I think the thing that,
0: uh, you know, it,
1: it, and you, you sort of, in the in a, this is one of the things I know you want to address is sort of now that if you know a little bit about what, you know, what implicit bias is, the question kind of becomes, how do you, how do you acknowledge it and, and start to make those lenses less distorted? Yeah. And this is, there's a couple of things that we've tried to really encourage, particularly <clears throat> In workplace environments and, and in educational environments so we since our work is a lot with young kids, we think it's really important that children as they grow up have a wide range of exposure to people of diff- who are different from them and you know if if, if you don't live in a community that 's got diversity, you have to think about ways to introduce diversity um, either by having kids go do field trips or make sure the multimedia content they see is is adequately diverse so that as their brain is creating these little catalogs that they don't view somebody of a different skin color or somebody who dresses differently or has different beliefs about God as, as so novel and bad. And so what you really want to do is particularly as you're raising children, the more diverse the environment is, the, more, the less distorting that child's filters will be as they grow up, which means that they'll be much more capable of succeeding in this increasingly diverse world, which is a, a good thing. For those of us who kind of grew up in these homogeneous environments, you, it's, it's not hopeless, which is the good news. What you need to do is just intentionally spend time with people who are different from you. Now, this is an interesting thing because our culture, you know, one of the ways we don't talk about this aspect of implicit bias, but it's a huge thing. Is that one of the biggest aspects of homogeneity that's destructive, I think, in our culture is homogeneity of income. Hmm. So rich people hang out with rich people and, and poor people have to basically hang out with poor people. And so what happens is, and, and because that's been growing and growing and growing and growing, and because the media has been portraying like the Kardashians and, and all kinds of other people with just unrealistic amounts of wealth, and, and that the new sort of diversity has to be around economics, not, not skin color. I, and I think that skin color is part of something that we have to include in that, that but the reality is I think a lot of these biases are, 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 are and self-loathing internalizations are about how much money you have, which I think is really bad, really uh, unfortunate because we've got a lot of poor kids in our country, and they're all growing up thinking they should have more things. And what we need more of isn't more things. We need more connections. We need more relationships. And this is – anyway, that's kind of my bias about what I think we need – to sort of how, how we need to address these things is that I think that people that have money have to spend time with people who don't have money. Uh,
0: you, you you hit like this this interesting button. So uh, a couple of shows, I mean, a couple of interviews I, I've already conducted, that is a theme that has consistently been a part of unrelated conversations. I mean, in, in terms of you don't know these other people and they don't necessarily know you and you haven't spoken with them but as a thing that needs to be addressed the, the economic social status thing has come up a couple of times in, in a number of interviews that i've done and i find that very i find it very interesting
1: and think about it if you are a wealthy or at least well-off physician 80 percent of your clients you know, if you practice in a city, are going to be poor. You're going to have a lot of poor people that come in, people that don't have things, and they're going to be carrying stuff in their head about you, and you're going to be carrying stuff in your head about them, and it's going to influence the creation of a healing relationship. In fact, I, I would believe it's going to interfere with the creation of a healing relationship, which, wow. as we know from everything about sort of the 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 sort of the neurobiology and the physiology of healing relationships are at the core of a successful healing relation, you know, healing experience hmm. and um, the industrialization of medicine is getting in the way of healing. And that's one of the reasons that i like Mayo is that Mayo Clinic has actually from the start intentionally focused on relationships, on respect on listening, on spending enough time with people, on getting to know them, and that's why you're so successful. It's not because you're so damn smart. You're, you don't have any more intellectual content than anybody else, but your outcomes are better because you form relationships. Yeah. And, and I think that <clears throat> one of the things that gets in the way of those relationships is this disparity between haves and have-nots.
0: Wow, 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 wow! so I, I, I want to say thank you so much for your jewels of wisdom. Thank you for the compliments. Uh, my audience will appreciate those uh, but I, I really want to thank you for the the clarity, the clarity that you 've given, particularly because you know at mayo we try to boil things down to its most um, important and crucial kernel. And I think this whole conversation can be boiled down to the fact that we need to be mindful about building healing relationships. Exactly. And yeah. uh, and that goes directly in line with um, the needs of the patient come first, right? And yeah. so one of those needs is to have a healing relationship with every aspect of our of our uh, our healing community. Yeah, and I think
1: a huge part of it is what you you know the topic of. Excuse me of implicit bias You know if you keep hammering away at it and people begin to understand it and you uh, Make systemic and structural changes to diminish the implicit bias of the people in your system They themselves see and this is all about parallel process You know we talk about sort of creating this positive thing with your patient But if you don't have if your superiors and your colleagues don't have equally respectful caring connections, you can't do that with your patients as well. And so I think that successful organizations have parallel process from the top all the way down to the frontline workers. That um, if respect uh, and relationship uh, are what you want to create with the patient, that has to be mirrored by the way you treat the people you supervise, and the people who supervise you, and um, again, I think you know i 'm sort of making these judgments about Mayo based upon my older awareness of what mayo was, yeah. but I, everything that i 've seen you know I, you know everything that I see and hear about what you guys are doing, I think that that old ethic still permeates what you do
0: yeah, yeah it, it certainly does, and uh, yeah and, and you know to to use kind of a street vernacular we can't fake the funk, right? So we, we, we have to be intentional in every aspect of, of our dealings with internally, e- externally, and um, you know, I'm proud to be a part of this organization for, because of that fact. I, I don't think that we fake the funk, but we're always trying to look for that, that extra kernel. And I wanna thank you for adding to our knowledge base so that we can be more effective both internally and externally. My pleasure. And all I can say is good luck editing this. <laughs> yeah. 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 No, th- we'll have, we'll have fun with that. Um, I, what I will do now is uh, I'm going to clap and then I'll do um, uh, an outro and then later I'll go, come back and do the, the, the intro. Um, but again, I want to say thank you so much for your time. And it's at, at some point, um, I don't know who your, your scheduling folks are, um, but we may be interested in having you come in and, and, talk about these things in person uh, here in Rochester. You're in Chicago. Is that correct?
1: Well, it's kind of complicated. I'm actually on the faculty at Northwestern, but I, I live in Chattanooga, Tennessee. North, oh, okay. Oh, sweet.
0: Great, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's
1: great. We, we do a ton of web-based <clears throat> teaching work like this. Actually, we use Zoom all the time. Oh. So, But I am, I'm actually up,
0: uh, I travel a lot. So, okay. you know, and
1: I'd be honored to come and, and, Talk with you guys.
0: That's well, something. wonderful, wonderful. So I'll, I'll check those things out. So I'm going to clap now. This is Andre Cohen with another episode of Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion. And I want to say thank you so much to, to Dr. Bruce Berry for uh, speaking with us today and, and really have, have, helping us to think about how our brains work and how we can uh, overcome those uh implicit or unconscious bias pieces by building healthy healing relationships and so um this has been a a, a great show don't forget this is our inaugural um season so uh please tell us what you like who you like to hear from again um if there was some jokes or timing or music that that didn't appeal to you or or that really got you motivated please um leave us a comment. Again, this is Andre Cohen from the Mayo Clinic, and this is Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion. Have a great day. Bye. So I hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, Dr. Bruce uh, Perry is, I I actually found him to be very down to earth for someone who's so accomplished. Uh, It was great talking with him. And hopefully you learned as much as I did about how our brain works and and what we can do to make sure that we control our unconscious or implicit bias. So I want to say again, thank you. If there's anything that you'd, uh, you'd like to hear us talk about, like to, to see us explore, please uh, feel free to contact us. This is Andre Cohen at the Mayo Clinic, and this has been Speaking of Diversity and Inclusion. Have a great day. See you next time.